I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Steve, thank you for having me. It's good to uh, see your face and talk to you from across the uh, globe. It is uh, definitely across the globe. And you're joining me all the way from from Queens. And um, every time I hear the word Queens, having grown up on 80s hip hop and punk rock and heavy metal, I think Run DMC singing about Hollis Queens. And I think about the Ramones and all these awesome bands that came out of that area. And, you know, going back to the 80s, also a great movie coming to America. Oh. in Queens. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah funny. It's, it's funny. Coming to America, you would think it's the second time it's been mentioned on the show because I had a guy on the show called Remy Adeleke who was born to Nigerian royalty. And then, I mean, unfortunately, his dad passed away, but his dad had married an American woman from New York. So it was kind of like this coming to America love story. And then he moved back to the Bronx and all this sort of stuff happened. But it's a one of my favorite movies of all time, I have to say. Great movie. And yeah, Queen's rich history of pop culture. Um, uh, and then one of them is uh, Console Wars was written here in this apartment. <laughs> yes, yes. And I'm looking forward to chatting about Console Wars today. And um, I mean, the gaming landscape has changed so much in the last 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, well, well, let's say today, you have so many different options. You've got the mobile games, you've got obviously Fortnite, PC gaming, so many different consoles. Whereas 20 years ago, that wasn't really the case. No, absolutely, well, absolutely not. I mean, like, it, it, of course, there's a million differences between now and then. But just even for younger listeners, just the way that information was distributed, like even pre-internet, also just like basically, uh, what I'm trying to say is that I remember when I would want to get a game. You know, it was like a fifty dollar expense. It was a lot. The only criteria I had to base my decision on was what I'd heard from friends. And usually it wasn't much if it was a new game and the back of the box, like there were trailers, maybe there would be something in Nintendo power or another magazine. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it was just really tough. And nowadays um, there's, you know, indie developers, there's so many games to choose from, but you also can demo them. You can, you know, you kind of know more what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. My, my strategy back in the day, I mean, back in the early nineties on the Nintendo entertainment system, I, I remember, games being about 80 Australian dollars, which is about, say, 60 US dollars. And I would buy a game, play it for about two or three weeks, however long it took to clock the game. Do you guys use that word clock the game in the United States? That's what we refer to if you uh, successfully completed the game. We clocked it in Australia. And then once I did that, I take it back to wherever I bought it from and say, hey, I got this as a gift. Um, I was hoping to to exchange it. And I must have done that with about 20 or 30 games. It, It saved my parents more so than me a lot of money. Wow, look at you beating the system. Nintendo would not have been happy with you. Sega might have applauded your effort. Um, but what, what, what was your background? You got a uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. Did you get a Super Nintendo? What, what was your console history? Uh, so my console history was I initially had a hand-me-down from my older brother, which was a Commodore VIC-20. Now that's going back to the early 80s, like really, really low sort of uh, bitrate, uh, terrible pixel pixelated uh, games. But it was fun, man. Like I was eight years old or seven years old at the time. That was fun. Then it was a Nintendo Entertainment System. And then I basically went on to the PC games after that. So I was playing like Commander Keen, the early 2D version of Duke Nukem. Um, and that was basically me, um, Wolfenstein. And then I moved on to uh, the Xbox, the Xbox 360 and so on. I mean, what was your sort of evolution like with uh, with consoles? My evolution was I got the 8-bit NES for Christmas or Hanukkah in <laughs> the late 80s. I remembered... I remember being so excited, but also not even knowing what it was. I was just excited because I knew this is the thing everyone wanted. And yeah. just, you know, the a video game when you are unaware of it is kind of a novel concept. It's like, oh, cartoons, but you can play them kind of. Um, and then, you know, my brother and I, we, my brother, my younger brother was like the one thing we could do together because I was a terrible older brother, but we played Nintendo. And so naturally we wanted a Super Nintendo. And so we put together like the childhood equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation for our parents to explain like, here's why we need to get the Super Nintendo. We'll combine our birthday and Hanukkah and all, you know, all these gifts in order to get this. And my parents said no. And I really distinctly remember that. That's part of why I ended up writing the book, just because the reason our parents said no, they were great parents. They almost always tried to figure out a way to help us get what we want, whether it was doing chores or, mm. you know, waiting a certain amount of time. 
but they said no on principle because they felt that Nintendo had, you know, gotten us, gotten families to buy these expensive libraries of games that no longer worked because the systems weren't backwardly compatible. Mm. And so because of that business decision, I ended up not being a Nintendo family anymore, um, which years later would sort of spark my interest in the business side of this battle. And, uh, and then we ended up getting a Sega. I guess that was like an exception <laughs> to the, my parents' rule. Um, and so I was a Sega kid and it was probably suited me well. Um, because I, I've always really liked sports games the most and Sega mm-hmm. did have better sports games than Super Nintendo. Yeah, no, I love that uh, story about putting together a childlike, childhood equivalent of a pitch deck, essentially. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I imagine that sort of skill set may have um, served you well when you were looking to get a book deal for, for your books. Yeah, you know, figuring out uh, different ways to appeal to someone's interests and coming up with incentives and yeah. Uh, but it was a long road to that. Not only was it, you know, 20 years or so, but um, at the time that I got the book deal, I had a day job trading commodities for Brazilian clients. Um, so I had a day job that I had for seven and a half years that was not at all related to writing, not what I wanted to be doing. Mm. Um, and so console wars uh, sort of saved my life or, or made my dream come true, I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean... Uh- Obviously, we're we're pulling out all sorts of lessons from this conversation already, parenting lessons, but also on um, finding work that really resonates with you. I mean, you were working in the, like you said, in the trading space for a number of years. What was it that forced you to kind of take that step? Was it like this feeling deep down where you just felt that you just didn't want to continue doing what you were doing and that you wanted to, um, writing was what you wanted to do? I mean, how, what did, how did that look? Um, so, um, by the time I was in college, um, I went to a college here in Washington, D.C., um, in, in the United States, and I knew freshman, so I knew by probably freshman year, by, you know, age 18 or 19, that I wanted to be a writer, but I had mm-hmm. no idea, one, if I had the talent, and I certainly didn't back then, and then two, how to make money doing it. And even to this day, it's still a difficult, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to make a living writing, but it's also almost difficult, it's, it's very difficult to give advice because, it's a lot of non-traditional ways. There's no mm. typical path. I mean, there used to be more stable money with journalism. But anyway, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know how to make money. I wrote a couple of no- novels in college that were, I'm sure, terrible. But uh, coming out of college, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, be able to survive and support myself. I had applied to some graduate schools to do writing or screenwriting. Uh, I didn't get into most, but even the ones I got into, I figured it was better not to take out loans to do something that I was self-motivated <laughs> to do anyway. Because I, I guess that was the one thing that I identified early on was that regardless of whether I had talent or not, I was self-motivated. I was able to sit down and write for eight to 10 hours a day, several days. I was able to make mm. progress. I was able to edit my own work. Um, so that was a, you know, a really helpful skill set. And then, so, so the whole time I had this day job trading commodities, the goal was to quit and, and write full time. Um, and for most of that time, I was doing screenwriting as I figured that was a better way to, um, you know, monetize the craft. Um, so I did that for several years. I never sold a single script. Um, but I did at least have good enough writing samples that I was able to get good representation, which would come in handy when console wars happened. Um, and it was actually like a very big surprise. Uh, you know, in terms of learning lessons, the big lesson that I learned with console wars, especially mm-hmm. early on, was the importance of following my passion, which sounds cheesy and maybe obvious, but for me, it was a big deal because I, I loved writing. I loved the screenwriting I was doing, but it was not, um, you know, I, it, they weren't like, uh, personal, I guess screenwriting is a director's medium, uh, filmmaking is a director's medium. So screenwriting is not, uh, my favorite type of writing to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you're trying to write scripts that you think will sell. Um, so I'm still, you know, I'm proud of the scripts that I wrote, but it wasn't like, a burning passion to tell this certain story. Yeah. And after some really bad screenwriting experiences and thinking that I was never going to make money doing it, I decided, all right, I'm just going to work on something that I have a burning passion for, which was learning about Sega and Nintendo. I figured that was a project that I would never make money on. And that's the one that I ended up making a career on. So um, I I like, I I like that story because, uh, you know, to me, it tells me passion is important to follow. And also because in the year since I've, you know, interviewed probably over a thousand people. And I do think that's a common thread amongst the successful people Mm -hmm. I speak with. You know, a lot of times it's filmmakers and it's not the movies that they were trying, you know, the movies they thought would sell. It's the one where they're like, all right, I kind of give up and I just want to do this thing I love. And people somehow, you know, because of the care you put into it and and the affection for the, the content 
that seems to resonate. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And having interviewed a lot of people on this podcast as well, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, doing something that aligns with your with, with your passions, but also something that you're gifted at. I mean, you're actually good at it. You're not just... And you don't just enjoy it. Like I love surfing, but I suck at surfing. Like I wipe out all the, all the time. So I'm probably not going to be, uh, you know, signing up for the world's uh, surfing tour anytime soon. But, uh, it's something that, um, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great and Built to Last talks about where he says that, uh, great companies are like hedgehogs where they do one thing really well. Like they curl up into a ball and their spikes come out kind of like Sonic. Um, and then the predators can't do anything. Like they're just going to get pricked if they try and eat them. Right. And, um, where, and you can apply that to yourself as well. Like do something that you're passionate about, that you're great at. And also it's got to make some money because we live in a world where we need to buy things in order to survive. So if it does those three things well, then you're on your way. Yeah. And so, uh, Council Wars was life changing for me. I, I quit my day job on the, my final day was my 30th birthday. And so for the past six and a half years, I have been, uh, I'm wearing shorts right now, not pants, not uh, anything good. fancy. And, uh, and I really do wake up like, wow, I get to write every day. And, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's a fascinating, uh, evolution. And oftentimes you need to go on that journey and do stuff that perhaps doesn't align and stuff that essentially is there to fund your craft to get to that outcome. Cause it's hard to get to that place without, having some money in your pockets actually create the times that you can invest in the screenwriting and then invest in writing your own book. Otherwise, it's a bit hard if you've got no money coming in and you need to sit down for several months and, and write a book. So I think um, a great lesson there. In- uh, that's a really good point because I remember um, I, you know, I had people in my life that were also struggling writers or people who were trying to make it and some of them didn't have day jobs or mm. you know, they really sort of like weren't worried about money. And I, at times I was jealous that they were so committed to the craft um, but I also felt like maybe that worked for a burst of time. But then for me, not having, you know, having the, the, basically a, a shorter way of saying it is that when you're worrying about rent, when you're worrying about feeding yourself, it's hard to focus on trying to create great art. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to be a millionaire to to focus on great art. But but having those things taken care of did give me a peace of mind that for for me was very very helpful. And I know that that might also just be like some. Um, perception that happens to work well with how things worked out for me. Um, but, but that's how it was. And also, you know, I, I mentioned my parents earlier, they're super supportive, but they're, they're doting Jewish parents who wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer who wanted me to have a good job. And, you know, writing was very suspect. Um, so it took some time to convince them that this was the right path, but things fortunately worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's uh it's it's so true with with respect to uh f- funding your your craft. I mean it, it's interesting because some people might say well if you haven't got a plan B then you just go all in. But I've worked with so many startups um, and entrepreneurs who when they're, say, looking down the barrel of maybe two months runway, and if they don't make any money in the next two months, they're out of business. What you often see is that they just look for any possible way to make money. And so they basically compromise on their core purpose. They, they compromise on what the company is about in order to survive. So you're absolutely right. Like when you do create that space, you can just be creative and, and not compromise or sacrifice your overarching purpose or what the kind of work you want to do. And that's when you might find yourself, you know, writing screenplays and whatnot for your entire life rather than writing books about console wars and VR like you're doing now. Yeah, that was a very good point. Um, So... Obviously, we're going to talk about console wars today. And, you know, we started chatting about upbringing and the evolution of consoles and whatnot in our, in our respective childhood households. But, you know, growing up in Australia, you were either Mario or Zelda or you were, uh, Wonder Boy or Alex the Kid. So for me, it <laughs> seems like, uh, 
you, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, it seemed like you were either Nintendo Entertainment System or Sega Master System. At least in Australia, it felt like it was a 50-50 split. But from what I understand, that wasn't the case in the US. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, I mean, you're, you're right, obviously, because you lived through it. But, but it is very interesting because su- such a central part of the console wars narrative in the book is that Sega was nothing. Mm. But outside of the United States... In and outside of Japan or Asia, there were so many countries where it was like a Sega versus Nintendo battle in the eight bit generation because Nintendo um, ignored and had different policies for other countries. And you know, in Brazil, because I happen to be trading Brazilian commodities, I have <laughs> you know, I know, and they they did they had a lot of gray market and black market consoles, and Nintendo was very strict, so a lot of master systems were there. So it's very interesting, um, you know, to think about in this pre globalized time you know how how the distribution of these consoles went but yeah in america um i knew one person who had a sega master system and it was cool because it was different but it wasn't cool enough that i ever thought oh i would really like to get this or i'm gonna save up my money for this um you know nintendo was dominant to the point that uh one of my favorite ads that i ever you know found during the research was um an ad that nintendo had taken out that said there's no such thing as a nintendo and the reason they put that out was for trademark purposes because nintendo was becoming so ubiquitous um you know as a as a term to describe video games like kleenex for tissues or jacuzzi for hot tubs Mm. that they were actually trying to differentiate it for trademark purposes but but that's what it was i mean my mom still calls everything a nintendo but um but nintendo was super super dominant here and in their, uh, you know, the home country of the co- of the company in Japan. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, you mentioned that Nintendo maintained that strict control uh, over who could create games for its consoles. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the book is largely uh, written from the perspective of Sega. And in that respect, it is um, a David and Goliath story where you have mm. this company with less than 5% of the market going up against the Goliath of Nintendo that is, like we said, this juggernaut. They have 90, 95% of the market. And then in a short time between 1990 and 1993, 94, Sega actually surpasses Nintendo. Um, and, you know, but going back to Nintendo's dominance and um, how they were able to, to keep that dominance, a lot of it was based on control. They, um, you know, Third-party developers, so outside companies, are making games for the NES. They were making millions and millions of dollars, so naturally they wanted to make as many games as possible. Or, you know, young or smaller developers wanted to make games for the NES. Mm -hmm. But they were very controlling about what could be on their system. Uh, In a lot of ways, I think a modern comparison would be like Apple, you know, just having very high quality standards that do sort of, you know, it's a gatekeeping role that keeps out smaller you know, less well-funded companies, but at the same time, Nintendo was doing so because they believed that that was best for their customer base. And you know, I think there's like a cynical way of looking at it where they're just saying that because that you know, who who doesn't want control as a company? Yeah. But but then as I researched deeper into the book and I spoke more with the people in Nintendo, they really did feel like. For them, it was less about Nintendo versus Sega. It was Nintendo versus the ghost of Atari. And there had been this video game crash here in 1983 in the early mm-hmm. 80s where video games were over. People thought it was a fad. I was watching a clip the other day where um, an analyst compared it to the hula hoop where he said, you know, people will maybe still continue to buy it, but like no one's going to invest money in this. The fad's over. Yeah. And so Nintendo didn't want that to happen again. And so um, there was almost a nobility um, or, you know, a noble way of looking at it where they were uh, choosing to have you know, to make less money in the short term by letting all these, you know, third parties make games for their system um, and, and you know, trying to have this quality control. And then another good example that goes back to your sneaky way of playing video games was, you know, some people who weren't as clever as you, a, a similar path might be to go to a, a, a movie of a, a game rental place, uh-huh. which was usually rental places. And, you know, for $5, you could play a game for the weekend and see if you want to buy it or you can keep playing it. Um, Nintendo sued Blockbuster Video. They sued... Um, like, you know, they didn't want there to be rentals. They sued Galoob, the makers of Game Genie, which mm-hmm. gives you like... Game Genie. That takes me back. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a Game Genie. I remember having like 100 lives in Super Mario. It was yeah, the best. Kid here. You just um, fly over the, every single level. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and then you see like, like I said, this comparison to Apple or to Disney or still to Nintendo today where 
there's nothing I would think it's hard to argue. There's anything inherently wrong with giving people the ability to have a hundred lives or to do these hacks, but <laughs> Nintendo didn't want that to happen. They wanted to control what could and could not be done and make sure that, you know, they either focus tested it or it worked for their business model. Mm. And so it was a really difficult environment for any other company. Like, you know, that's a big part of why, the master system was not successful here. It wasn't that necessarily Nintendo had better games, though they did have the best ones like Mario and Zelda and, yeah. and all that. But like, but these other companies didn't even have a chance of competing because Nintendo um, would leverage their their dominance. You know, there's a, a good example in the book. One of my favorite stories is just the Walmart example, where by the time that Sega has the 16-bit system, which at least for a period of time is technologically better than what Nintendo's offering, um, they can't even get it sold into the biggest retail in the United States because Walmart does not want to risk upsetting Nintendo. And, um, you know, Nintendo was uh, very... Uh, you know, they, they face legal consequences here in the United States for uh, monopolistic predatory practices. And, um, you know, as, as Howard Lincoln, the, uh, the executive vice president and later the chairman of Nintendo America noted to me when I talked to him, uh, the, the, the result of that, um, antitrust litigation, the punishment that Nintendo faced was basically to give out millions of dollars of coupons to people who had bought Nintendo products so they could then buy more Nintendo products. So mm. uh, Nintendo had a pretty good thing going here for a while, and they certainly did not think that a company like Sega would be able to pierce the market. Yeah, it's interesting the um, what you said there about Walmart, because that relationship with your brick-and-mortar retail stores could really have made or broken um, a, a manufacturer back in the day um, on both sides of the, of the, of the coin, because I, if I look at Dell Computer, when they came along with their mail order service and you had those existing players on the market like Compaq, who were heavily reliant on retailers. And, you know, if they tried to compete with Dell head on and sell their stuff online, then their retailers would have said, Hey, why are you selling this stuff online for like half of what we're selling it for right. and pull all of the stock? But at that point in time, most of Compaq's revenue was through the brick and mortar retail stores. So they were kind of handcuffed to that. And as we will know what happened to Compaq. I mean, they went the way of Blockbuster, essentially. Um, but on, right. in this case, Nintendo is, essentially has the advantage because, at least a short-term advantage, because of their relationship with Walmart. Um, another thing um, that I found find quite interesting about that business model that Nintendo had around the control was that every third-party developer... Um, had to buy cartridges for something like 10 US dollars each so that they would make a profit on all sorts of games, no matter how good or how bad they were. Right. That was another big part of it. And again, you can understand, you, you know, you can, there's, a, there's a, a sympathetic version of, you know, when it was their cartridges, they knew that they can, it would be 100% quality control or at least the highest standards, you know, of, of working. And then sort of like, you know, the, the, like all the systems of hardware and software for Apple, where, you know, if you have the iPhone and iTunes, or I guess not iTunes anymore, you know, it all works better when it's working together. Mm. Um, but th some people can't afford that, or some people want to go a different way, or, but, you know, Nintendo had the leverage to, to prevent that from happening, to um, require that you purchase the cartridges from them. And that was also a big upfront expenditure, um, you know, because a lot of the companies, they would have the R&D for the game and the development, and then they would now need to pay even more for the physical cost to manufacture these games, and they wouldn't start recouping the money until after all of that. So it was difficult, and I think to some degree, Nintendo, that was intentional on Nintendo's part. They didn't want companies that could go bankrupt easily to be making games because they wanted to be, you know, sturdy companies and and really make this industry very strong. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that clicked for me when talking to Tom Kalinske, who was the president of Sega of America from 1990-96 and is the basically the protagonist of the book was to him um it was about choice it was about um you know under nintendo system developers who were making these games and retailers like walmart who were selling these games um they they basically had to do one you know there was only a certain type of game that could be made there was only a certain company that you could uh have in store and uh he just thought that that was morally and fundamentally wrong that america mm. is all about you know choice and and you know that's what capitalism's all about so he was going to try to offer choice um and that is uh you know and bring it to like a modern day parallel there's there's a good and bad that comes from that you know i i have never had a knock on wood uh virus problems with my apple computers because it's all fully integrated yeah. um and i've also i will say this i've had you know 
during the writing of this book, I was not a my, I was not a fan favorite at Nintendo for a while because this chronicles some of their more difficult years. So I have a complex relationship with Nintendo. But I will say that after you know, I'm 36 years old and I've never in my entire life bought a Nintendo product that wasn't worth the money. So the upside to that quality control that they still really implement to this day is that when you buy a Nintendo product, it will generally be worth the money. It's usually a good, full, polished, polished game. And that's definitely not true of Sega or any other console I've gotten. But at the same time, I respect giving the option to developers to really explore and, you know, flex their creative chops, even if it doesn't work out. Mm. It's, it's an interesting um, sort of battle between open source and, and, and closed, right. uh, essentially. I mean, there's pros and cons on both sides of the fence. And, and we see that even um, across the technology spectrum with, um, you know, Linux and WordPress and Magento and Ubuntu and Mozilla and all these different types of platforms that have essentially come about through open source collaboration um, and have, you know, in, in many ways, I mean, you can compare that to, say, Internet Explorer, for example, in the browser space, which is obviously not very good. Um, right. So... I guess it comes down to the initial, to the company and how many resources they have and does closed work for them and will it always work for them? Does it offer them an advantage in right. that particular industry and so on? So it's a fascinating sort of, sort of tussle. No, I, I totally agree. And that was something that really helped me understand the story better. Because at first I thought Nintendo was just being a bunch of jerks. And I started to understand that at least they have a business sense, even if it's one that benefits them the most. But, but I think that a, a big part of it and the reason why Sega was able to take advantage of Nintendo is that a lot of times, whether you have an open system or a closed system and mm -hmm. everything is always kind of somewhere in the middle, um, it, you know, there's no pure open or pure closed. Yeah. It, it's about bedside manner. Cause, um, like, you know, reading interviews with Nintendo personnel from that time, it wasn't, um, they weren't very friendly about the fact that they were a, a closed system. They, it was more like a, our way or the highway situation. And that rubs people the wrong way. It makes them excited to see you toppled. Like I remember just a small example was um, I met with a guy here in New York who uh, used to be an executive, the Wiz, which uh, was a big electronic store here in the eighties and nineties. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a Seinfeld episode with the Wiz guy. Um, and, and he was just saying how much he wanted to see Nintendo fail. And so one small thing he would do was he would give the best uh, store space to Sega and he would give them the end caps and he would make sure that all the games look good. And that's a small thing. Maybe it didn't mm. really make that many sales, but there's just a momentum that builds when so many people want to see you topple. And so, it, it, you know, at, at the end of the day, bedside matter is something that generally costs you nothing to be uh, accommodating and kind. And um, yeah, it's just yeah. interesting to yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, in Australia, we have something called tall poppy syndrome, where if you stand out, you basically get snipped, right? Um, and it's the same here, where you're talking about Sega being the smaller company, Nintendo being this huge behemoth, certain people gravitate towards rooting for the underdog. And so if you're in that position where you can kind of try and influence the outcome somewhat, maybe you own a, a retail store, then you're probably going to do that. And, and also, I mean, when you are that tall poppy, it's hard to, to stay tall. I mean, you might just bend over. You might start making mistakes because you're trying to maintain that growth that's going to uh, maintain that market share. So what kind of um, mistakes did Nintendo make um, in the early, early 90s? No, that's a really great question. Uh, and, and it's a great point. Um, you know, and I think that we all... Um, you know, life, so much of life is about expectations and your expectation change when you're successful. So yeah. it's, you know, you might think, oh, having 70% of the market's awesome. But when you had 90% of the market, 70% is terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it means that you're having a lot of down years. Um, I think that, um, a, a, a couple of things. Uh, so, you know, one of them is that Nintendo did resurrect the video game industry in the United States, as it were, after that video game crash. It was the first console I had. Um, and, but, it, but, and so it was perfect for, for young kids. That was their, who their market was with Mario games and these family friendly games, but they didn't age up with us. Um, you know, they, they, they kept making the same games yeah. throughout the early days of the Super Nintendo. Um, and they really didn't try to appeal to a more, a more mature audience. And I don't mean that as like a coded way to say pornography, but just like, you know, they didn't put much emphasis on sports games, which is something I grew more interested in as I got mm -hmm. older. Um, another thing too, um, just in terms of a, uh, uh, from like an entrepreneurial or a business standpoint was just the way that they perceived the competition. Um, Nintendo definitely just ignored Sega. They didn't consider it a threat. Um, you know, contrast that to nowadays where, you know, for my more recent book about Oculus, it's largely towards the end, a book about Facebook because Facebook acquired Oculus for mm -hmm. a few billion dollars. And you see that 
um, Facebook and a lot of these tech companies, they are super proactive in identifying potential competitors at a very early stage. And they'll either clone their features or try to buy them or mm-hmm. try to beat them early on. Um, and, you know, Nintendo just never, you know, it was, it was almost like to, to acknowledge that they had a competitor was to breathe that competitor into existence. Meanwhile, Sega was taking their market share. Um, it was another way to put it too, um, is, is just that Sega, um, that Nintendo wanted to deliver what they wanted to deliver, what they believed was the best kind of consumer experience, but they weren't talking to consumers. Um, so they weren't growing with them. They weren't really adapting. And, and, you know, that makes, may, might sound like, Oh, that was the wrong thing for them to do. But, but also to some degree, they are, you know, they're putting out these creative products or artists and, you don't want artists yeah. to necessarily bend their visions to hit a market target. Like there's something almost beautiful about Nintendo wanting to make these games that Miyamoto wants to make, wanting to make games like Zelda. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, even to this day with uh, the top games for the switch are, are properties that came out in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's also, um, you know, like what we were talking about earlier about, um, entrepreneurs and and when they only have a couple months runway they might get desperate or um you know change your mission to a, try to have a short-term goal and i think the nintendo just really lost sight of what their identity was for a while i think that the best thing to happen to them as a result of the console wars with sega was that they found their footing and, and figured out who they were and um you know you could say, wow, they went from 90% of the market to now they're not even in the top two with Sony and Microsoft. But they did sort of figure out what they wanted to be. They didn't want to be a, you know, the big console maker that has the latest Call of Duty and games like that. They wanted to be a company, stay true to their Mario roots, their Disney-esque roots. And, and to be, and I think that, um, you know, I, I admire them actually for doing that, for not trying to be everything to everyone. Whereas Sega did try to be everything to everyone. Mm. And after a while that, sort of ran thin. And uh, I think, you know, in general, it's, it's tough because of exactly what you said. Like, uh, pe- consumers are generally sympathetic to the underdog. Um, and so one of the problems that Sega faced was after they surpassed Nintendo and they were no longer this scrappy, cool company, um, you know, they lost their identity a bit because they were so defined by being the little brother to, to, to Nintendo. And, and it's just hard to um, deal with that. And, you know, it's, it's not super shocking that Sony was able to come in and, and take control. Um, and there's, there's kind of a, an irony to all of it that like, you know, Sony was the underdog in the console space, but they were a huge, gigantic company. They had more resources <laughs> than Sega. Um, and you see that nowadays, like again, with my more recent book about Oculus, um, you know, Oculus was acquired by Facebook and that changed the way people looked at them. They were no longer the scrappy Kickstarter company. They were Facebook, the evil big company yeah. and they were competing against, um, Valve and in the video game space for, you know, the VR for VR storefronts, Valve was dominant, but, and, and Oculus had nothing because they were starting, but because they were Facebook backed, they were perceived as the mm. Goliath. And it's just interesting how that perception plays a role. And I guess there's not always so much you can do about changing that perception, but at least being conscious of it will help you, uh, message better and, and find your footing. Mm-hmm. That's a great, great point. And it's funny you should say Sony because like you said, they were an underdog and they went on to dominate the home video game market. But then if you look at say portable music, you know, once upon a time, they owned the world's biggest record label. They were all about the Discman and the Walkman. So they dominated that market. Hey, take one and two, put them together and you've got yourself the, you know, Apple iPod, but Apple came into that market, the underdog in music and completely dominated so you know they managed to climb the ladder at sony as far as video games are concerned but kind of fell down to the bottom of the ladder as far as portable music was concerned yeah and it's funny too because um i still think there's this uh unfortunate stigma that the gaming industry faces you know it's certainly not uh perceived with the same (laughs) revelatory spirit as as music or Mm. as as movies, but you know, so Sony, uh, you know, as a global entity was kind of skeptical about getting into gaming and it was sort of the ugly stepchild. Um, and nowadays it is more dominant as a bigger part of their business than the music industry and as, and I believe than the film industry. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of jumped over how Sega went on to dominate the market in the, in the mid nineties. And I mean, essentially, like you said, the, the console didn't, the Nintendo console didn't really grow up with us. Like I'm 36 as well. So I kind of uh, understand the, 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 the timeline and, 
Nintendo stayed true to its sort of wholesome family values. Um, I mean, the version of Mortal Kombat they released didn't even have red blood from what I understand. It just had gray yeah. blood, right? Um, whereas Sega appealed to kind of like the Pepsi generation, right? The, the, the taste for the new generation. Um, and so- Sonic was this cool character. Like I remember going over to my cousin's place um, back in the mid nineties, even though I identified as being a Nintendo um, faithful and a Mario faithful. I was secretly always jealous of, you know, Sonic, Tails, and, and the rest of the crew because they were just so much cooler than this little, you know, stocky plumber with a moustache. And I was kind of the opposite of that. You're right. Like, you know, uh, the advertising and the marketing is largely why Sega was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it appealed to the emotional aspects more so than the product development aspects. And, and I remember as a owner of the Genesis and, and being a Sega kid, I remember feeling like almost fraudulent because I was not a cool guy. I, I want I kind of wanted to play Mario. Like my speed <laughs> in life is slow, exploratory. I'm not a super fast person like like Sonic. And I remember feeling like, yeah, like I feel part of me felt proud. Like, yeah, I'm a Sonic guy. I'm a Tails guy. But then part of me felt like I'm not really that. Like, I, and, and it kind of just showed that the marketing did work. The marketing made me feel a certain way about myself and about what I was playing that went beyond the actual content and, and the actual person that I was when I look in the mirror, you know? Mm, mm. No, that, that's an interesting point, how one can identify with games based on the characters that are in them um, and therefore make choices as to who they uh, want to pledge their allegiance to as a consequence. It's, it's really interesting. I've never looked at it that way. But um, on um, Sega at the time having a much smaller marketing budget than Nintendo, but I guess it was the way they positioned themselves in the market as the underdog, as, you know, the choice for the new generation uh, or the next generation, um, to quote Pepsi. Um, they were able to get a lot more sales, particularly when it came to... Um, franchises like Mortal Kombat than Nintendo because of that positioning of the way they branded themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, a good example of how they were able to do more with less financially is, is just, uh, you know, the sort of spokesman that they'd have, like, you know, the, the top, you know, Sega couldn't afford the A-list actors like Tom Hanks or Dustin Hoffman, but they could afford, um, much cheaper teen idols like Dustin Diamond or uh, Joey Lawrence and and these sorts of people that, um, you know, you could say were available at like bargain bin prices. But if they were trying to appeal to teenagers and also be aspirational to younger kids, that's a better value than to actually spend all the money for a a Tom Hanks or a Kevin Costner at that time. And so Sega was smart to identify that and to also try to make it something desirable to us kids. And then, then they, then it really was about choice. You know, like it was about, um, you know, Sega played into when you're when you're growing up and you're going from a kid to a teenager to an adult, there is a lot of rebellious spirit and a mm-hmm. lot of rebellion just for the sake of it, just for the sake of trying to find yourself where you might stop playing something as fun as Mario. You might stop, you know, wanting to have dinner with your parents, even though it's very actually a very fun thing and you'll come to miss it later in life and you'll want to replicate it again. Yeah. But you want to rebel and, and Sega sort of knew how to push those buttons by it, for example, in Mortal Kombat, allowing you all the violence that was in the arcade game, whereas Nintendo didn't. And what I always found fascinating was that, you know, like you said, Nintendo chose that instead of allowing for the uh, fatalities that were in the arcade game and the, the red blood and all the gore, mm-hmm. they censored it and they had uh, a grayish, greenish, greenish sweat looking blood. <laughs> and, you know, they were taking a stand for families like they they, they got they ended up losing to Sega on that, they were outsold five to one. Mm. That helped Sega surpass Nintendo. And so you'd think, well, at least, you know, parents would be happy that they did the right thing, quote unquote. But actually, a lot of parents wrote to Nintendo angrily that they were censoring games and they were changing the artistic content. Um, so you have issues of, uh, you know, freedom of expression. Um, and so Nintendo just kept um, stubbing themselves in the toe. And, they, and like another example that comes to mind is uh, there was a whole thing with... Um, you know, blast processing was a big deal. Uh, say that was allegedly what made Sega's games go faster. Why Sonic can go so fast? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's debatable what what blast processing really is. Whether it was a marketing gimmick, but Nintendo's response to that was to sort of like hire a team of uh, 
think I get engineers or to do a scientific study to show the difference between glass processing and Nintendo system, um, which is not a very persuasive way to get a kid to see that they don't want blast processing. Like they just did, even if they were right, they didn't know how to convey that they were right or convey their position uh, because they were, I think they were very much out of touch with their audience. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, it's funny because despite, conquering Nintendo against all odds, despite having a smaller budget, they too then found themselves in the position that Nintendo was in a few years prior at the top of the market and needing to uh, essentially grow to maintain that dominant market share. And at this point, Sega started making mistakes too. And and interestingly, these mistakes came from uh, the top. They came from Japan, um, which kind of echoes what a lot of companies have experienced where they have meddling parent companies um, you know, I was listening to uh, an episode of Business Wars recently and they chronicled the fight between Gibson guitars and Fender guitars. And when those companies were uh, purchased by larger conglomerates, suddenly the quality of components in those guitars uh, went south and then your um, purists stopped buying the guitars. Um, so what happened in this case in so far as that meddling from the top um, is concerned and Sega's fate? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. It's it, it's uh, perhaps not surprising, but almost, but is somewhat staggering how much you successful companies um, explicitly and intentionally change the formula that got them to that success. And of yeah. course, when you scale up, you do have to. You're approaching a different audience. Mm-hmm. You have more resources. It, it makes sense why you'd have that temptation, and it makes sense, you know, why if 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 you're successful in executing that, it would, there would be a big windfall. But but you know, in terms of of sake of America. You know, one of the early parts of the books um, that sort of allows Sega of America to be successful and to become the most the dominant uh, subsidiary or the dominant uh, region of Sega's success was that Tom Klinsky proposed um, a four point plan to to do things a little bit differently to head to head advertising as Nintendo to bundle in their best game, which would be Sonic the Hedgehog, to make Hollywood based you know games based on IPs and sports, and they. And 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 fam- this was like a famous meeting where the head of Sega of Japan, Hayao Nakayama, um, expressed that everyone in the room thought this was a terrible idea, but he was going to let Tom have the autonomy to make that decision to mm. succeed or fail, and it was very successful. And then, you know, in a uh, Shakespearean poetic way, several years later, Tom wanted to uh, make the next generation system for Sega. Uh, initially a partnership with um, either Sega Graphic, uh, sorry, with Silicon Graphics, which made the chipset that became the Nintendo 64, or with Sony, which made the console that became the PlayStation. And Sega of Japan rejected both of those proposals, um, I would say not fully for rational purposes, or at least because they wanted to do things in-house. Um, and, you know, and, and that you know, there was something poetic about the fact that Sega passed up the opportunity to have made the consoles that ended up leading to its demise. But like, you you know, the larger point that you're making about um, just parent companies and subsidiaries and how the dynamic changes with success mm-hmm. was that, you know, I wrote a 500 page book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo. And at the end of the day, the most interesting battle, and certainly the one that led to the unraveling of Sega was the battle between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Mm-hmm. And like all good, you know, uh, dynamic shifts and battles you can understand it from both perspectives that you had sega of japan which was the parent company and they were so much more unsuccessful than sega of america you know like we were saying earlier that the master system was successful in australia it wasn't successful here in the u.s um that that was a pretty much what the genesis or the 16-bit system the mega drive of japan was like in japan it was there wasn't a big sega versus nintendo rivalry in the 16-bit era the the genesis or Mega Drive was very unsuccessful in Japan. And so they were eager to move on to the next generation and they wanted it to be their own system. And then I think where they really messed up was that after Silicon Graphics and Nintendo announced that they were doing a 64-bit system, the Nintendo 64, mm-hmm. uh, Sega of Japan sort of panicked and decided that instead of just the 32-bit system they were going to do with what became Sega Saturn, they were going to use uh, two different 32-bit chips and it was kind of a 64-bit system, but it also then made things incredibly difficult for developers to develop for. So reaching out to developers and getting the content they wanted on the Saturn was difficult. And, you know, you can argue about which system was ultimately better, but it kind of doesn't matter if you're not even getting the games on the system because developers don't want to work with you. Yeah, yeah. It's about understanding what the entire value chain looks like and what are the downstream effects of some of those head office decisions. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about closed versus open, um, ecosystems earlier. And I guess Sega becoming a lot more closed, at least at the, um, directive of its, um, head office in Japan f- essentially, um, preceded its, its downfall. And, and that whole notion of, um, not invented here, which shows up in so many companies today where there's, Perfectly good off-the-shelf solutions or customizable off-the-shelf solutions that may solve a problem for them, but they're like, well, let's just build it ourselves. And they may end up doing that and it'll spend a lot of time and money doing so. And then the end product is nowhere near what they could have got six months ago off the shelf for a fraction of the price. Yeah. And, and I understand too, like one of the, uh, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that the Sony PlayStation, which would be the most successful console of all time at that point, mm. you know, was was the dominant system of that next generation battle. And you can make the case at Sega that working with Sony would ultimately give, you know, so much control to Sony and they would end up getting screwed by Sony mm. later on. But that's, you know, that's you, you want to live to fight that other day. You know, I, I don't think the solution is to have a short term perspective and end up losing. Um, so it, there, I, I see that. Uh, all the time also when I'm interviewing tech people, the, the not invented here syndrome. And, uh, and then sometimes I actually see the opposite where they have such reverence for what other companies are doing that what they're inventing in house doesn't matter. But, uh, but, and, and it's hard, you know, some of the stuff is subjective too. what is a better system. Mm-hmm. It depends, but it's like you said, it's going through the value chain and saying, all right, well, better system. We can define it not just by what consumers are going to enjoy, but how do we get people to develop for it? How do we get stores to stock it? Like all these things matter because they're all part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make a great point there as well, because you can argue for both open, closed, uh, architectures and so on and every sort of outcome you can essentially fall victim to the narrative fallacy and trace a linear step of events that occurred and then trace that back and say well they should have done this instead but we don't know what the counterfactual may have been like if they did work with sony maybe there were, would have been other sort of internal issues that they would have encountered like who knows right no and that's a good point and that's something that you know, people have asked me, why did Sega fail or why did Sega leave the hardware industry? And I'm, you know, I don't feel comfortable speaking with any expertise, expertise about the ne- about the Dreamcast era or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but I do think that um, you get a sense of what the power dynamic was like between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And there was something inevitable uh, about that. You know, maybe it wouldn't have manifested in them getting out of the hardware business. Maybe it would have done something else. But there was at least something irreconcilable or some sort of, um, you know, difference that had to do with more than just the cultural nuances, but had to do with the fact that um, they had different marketplaces and were, you know, uh, receiving certain, you know, the allocation of credit really did uh, create a a, a, a fragile um, relationship between the two entities. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I understand the uh, book is now, you know, several years after its release being turned into a documentary by CBS All Access and um, it's being produced by Doug Blush who who worked on Icarus and The Hunting Ground. That's some exciting news. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is super exciting. Doug Blush, who's worked on all these Academy Award winning documentaries that I love. So I love nerding out and picking his brain about all that stuff. And then we're also working with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, um, who uh, make some of my favorite movies, <laughs> their comedies, and then Scott Rudin. Uh, so yeah, so it's, I mean, it's been a dream come true. It's taken a little bit longer to get where we wanted to go with this. Originally, it was going to be... Um, so, so, so there's a documentary that we're doing with CBS All Access. Um, and then we're also working with CBS All Access on a television series, like a dramatization of of the book, um, you know, more like the social network or halt and catch fire sort yeah. of thing. Um, and so we're working with them about those projects. And originally it was supposed to be a movie with Sony. But I think that um, as a guy who wrote a 500 page book, I like longer storytelling. <laughs> and so the golden age of television worked to our favor. And now we're doing it as a TV show. Um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been amazing to do both that. It's also been really nice for me. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, that um, when I wrote the book, I very specifically uh, or intentionally wrote it with like my grandmother in mind. I say that about all the writing I do. I want to make sure that what I'm writing, even though it's uh, usually tech or um, you know sort of esoteric stuff to a certain audience, I want to make sure that it can be accessible and enjoyed by any audience, including my grandmother. And usually that's by making it about the characters and about the larger themes. Um, so 
I ignored, I intentionally ignored a lot of the nostalgic aspects. I mean, I think a lot of people feel nostalgia reading consorts because it brings things back, but I didn't try to pull on those strings intentionally. Whereas with the documentary and you have all this great, all these great commercials and all these great, uh, videos from CES trade shows, you know, it's really nice to actually just be able to include it and, mm. um, and have that be as, as, as powerful as anything I could ever write or anything I could ever script out with the, you know, not script out, but like basically how we would cut the interviews together. Um, but then the other nice thing too is that, um, even though there was a tribalistic aspect to the Sega Nintendo battle, um, it always felt very civil. Um, maybe that's anecdotal, but, but it certainly did in a free internet era, it did not manifest to what, um, tribalism has become nowadays in, you know, whether it's actual, you know, console wars or culture wars or whatever the case. Yeah. And, and after my most recent book, which did, um, you know, touch on a political element unexpectedly. Who would have thought when I set out to write a book about gaming and VR that it would have anything to do with <laughs> President Trump and politics and all that? But there was a lot of polarizing opinions about the main character, Palmer Lucky, mm-hmm. and a lot of um, polarizing <laughs> receptions to the book that had nothing to do with the book. Um, so it was just, it's just been very nice to spend my time working on a story from an era where but what felt like, you know, feels like a golden age. And I know some of that is just the rose colored glasses of me being 36 now and being, you know, a kid back with no worries. But, but there was, there was, there was, uh, you know, not everything was a, was a fight back then. There was no Twitter backlashes. And it's just really nice to, um, to, to try to put together a time capsule that really captures that story. Yeah. And, uh, on the documentary and miniseries, I mean, when can we expect that to go live? Um, so I don't have any, concrete answers for you at this time mm-hmm. uh we are hoping to finish up the documentary and we i mean it's a whole team but i especially want to give credit to jonah Tulis, my co-director mm-hmm. uh who's been working on this with me for several years um you know we're hoping to finish up our cut by the end of the year or early january um so i don't uh it would be ultimately the decision of seth and scott and cbs all access when they would air it and all that stuff but but we're hoping uh you know that, that, that we'll be able to get a cutout maybe for festivals or maybe on CBS All Access already um, in, in, you know, early to mid 2020. Awesome. Looking forward to that one. And uh, I mean, we've couple, we've got a few minutes left. So I did want to touch on what you mentioned a few moments ago with Palmer Lucky over at um, Oculus. <laughs> Why not? While we've got you on the show. Um Essentially, we, like you said, we are living in a, in a world of tribal wars, cancel culture, and so on. Um, you know, the Oculus founder essentially founded that company in his bedroom. But I, I think you posted a photo of him in his bedroom, literally like in a basement, and his mom's taking the photo. And it's, it's just like, he seems like a kid in his, in his bedroom just working away. And, and a few years later, he's selling the company to Facebook for about $2 billion. And shortly thereafter, um, was removed from Facebook for what arguably seems like an affiliate for with um president trump i mean how did that come about <laughs> which part yeah so <laughs> yeah the photo you're talking about was actually with his he was 19 when he founded the company and he, the first employee of oculus was an 18 year old kid named chris dykus and so it was at this 18 year old kid's house his mom took the photo in the basement at the time palmer was living in a trailer in his parents driveway and it turned it into a mad scientist laboratory and he built this prototype that led to the Oculus Rift and they sold the Facebook and, and, you know, there, there's uh you know, we can argue about uh, why he was fired and how he was fired and whether it's fair, but yeah. it's it certainly one could say without dispute that his firing uh, was not, had nothing to do with virtual reality. It was uh, other factors. And yeah, he had, he made a $10,000 donation to a pro Trump organization Um and that alone in this current political climate might have been enough to make a lot of people upset, um, especially at that time in 2016 when, um, you know, uh, in America here, even though half the country voted for Trump, uh, a lot of people, especially journalists, uh, seem to act as if nobody would ever vote for uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the way the story was reported inaccurately that he was funding trolls and making misogynistic and anti-Semitic memes and all that inaccurately, you know, that he was branded as a white supremacist. Um, and, and, you know, I, we can we talk about this for hours, but, but I'll just button up by saying that um, that was a really eye-opening experience for me just because I know, I knew Palmer very well from covering the book. I knew that he was not a white supremacist. I knew what was true and what was not about a lot of these things and to see what was reported versus 
what the reality was, um, was shocking. And then even more shocking was that as the person who probably knew the most about the subject matter other than the subjects themselves, when I tried to correct the story, the, uh, the uh, lack of desire from those I contacted in the media to correct it was really eye-opening to me um, and, and very surprising. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I think the climate here has changed a little bit. Um, and, and at least fortunately for Palmer, there was a happy ending. He started a new company, Onderol Industries, which is a defense technology company. And they were recently valued at a, at a billion dollars. So he's now created a second billion dollar company before the age of 30. So he's a, he's a, he's a bright guy, let's just say. And so for Facebook to uh, fire him because he, you know, allegedly no longer had value. I think a guy who created $2 billion companies by the time he's 30 has some value to add to any organization. Yeah, (laughs) sounds like the case. Um, We we might leave that one there. But uh, on the topic of virtual reality, I mean, it sounds like, well, it seems like to me that since the 1980s, VR has been just around the corner, you know, VR gaming. Um, Having (laughs) done the work on your most recent book, what do you think in terms of how far away VR going mainstream really is, if ever at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as a kid, I remember it feeling like it was supposed to be right around the corner and it wasn't. I mean, even Sega and Nintendo both had VR products. The Nintendo did release their virtual boy. Sega didn't. Um, I, I, you know, I, I started this book because I believed in VR and I still do. Um, but the revolution is going to take, um, longer than many expected. I, the, the, the interesting thing is that I don't think it's going to, that it's take, I don't think that in terms of sales and adoption, it's actually been that much different than uh, myself expected, or particularly that those in the industry expected. It was more just that because there were sort of modest expectations that were so much stronger than what had been happening with VR before, it created a lot of hype for it and excitement. And, you know, uh, venture capital money came in and the press made it seem like this was going to happen. This was going to change the world tomorrow. And then when that doesn't happen, it feels like, oh, there's a disappointment. When in reality, it all is kind of going on a trajectory that you would expect. Um, But then again, you know, that hype certainly benefited Oculus. Maybe they could have done a better job of resetting expectations. Uh, I mean, it was definitely a short-term win for them to have those expectations be very high. Um, But I I still believe in it. I think that... um, you know, I, I think that be, because there's no, you know, killer app yet um, that, that, I mean, there's like Beat Saber is a great game. There's, there's stuff that people are loving. Uh, you're starting to see developers, you know, sell, like be able to go from small companies to actually real companies. Um, you know, I think that it's actually, I think people have stopped paying attention to it since they think that it somehow didn't work out again this time. But what's happening in this space is really quite amazing. And I think that it's going to take some time. Um, I think that ironically to maybe take this conversation full circle, Mm. I think that Nintendo is going to play a big role in it. I think that because when you go into a VR game or experience, so much of it is just the value of being in a virtual world um, you know, kind of the same way that people appreciate Minecraft, where it's not always about the objective, it's just about existing in that space and, and what you can do there. And so, uh, you know, the first thing I would think of if I can go, if I could step into a video game is to step into the Mushroom Kingdom. Like, I want to be in this place. It's, you know, it's probably going to be uh, well-known IPs that do the best at first because it's about, you know, it's, it's much more enticing to go into a Hogwarts than it is to go into some fictional wizard school that you've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nintendo has such incredible IP and so many, um, you know, I, like, I, I still do want to go into the Mushroom Kingdom. So, I, I I'm keeping a close eye on Nintendo in the VR space. Um, they've started to do a little bit more there, and uh, and and I and I hope they will continue to do more. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that 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 sounds awesome. Going into the Mushroom Kingdom, I definitely would uh wouldn't mind that experience. And um, as I like to do with every writer I have on this show, I think it'd be awesome to wrap up on a productivity tip. Um, Namely, most recently, I had um, Ben Mesrick on, who wrote Bitcoin Billionaires about um, the Winklevoss twins. And one of his tips was that when he finishes writing for the day, he stops midway through a sentence. Then the next day, he finishes that sentence and he's writing again. So he gets into flow quite quickly. Have you got any uh, one big tip you can share with our audience? 
Well, that's great because I have to say that I have to be in contention for biggest Ben Mesrick fan. I'm a really big fan of his work. His was a big inspiration of mine. Him giving a good quote to Council Wars was like the most awesome thing that happened with that book. Uh, I'm kind of the opposite of Ben in that regard. Um, my obsessive compulsions make me have to finish things and feel like they're in a certain <laughs> way by the time I'm done for the day. Um, I would say that um, obviously I write nonfiction. And so my best tip or what I've really learned the most is I want a story to be um, visible from as many perspectives as possible. And so uh, my tip would be to try to imagine what those involved in the writing of the story would say, all the different characters, those in the scene and those not in the scene. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean you need to change it to accommodate concerns or issues of credit, but, but it's just good to try to have that um, vision and, and, and that leads off into a curiosity. So that would be my tip is to just try to imagine the story from the different perspectives of those that you're writing about. That's a, that's a great tip. And this has been a great conversation, Blake. Um, people can pick up copies of your book on Amazon, both Console Wars and your latest book, The History of the Future. Um, they can find you online at Blake J. Harris NYC on Twitter, as well as at your website, BlakeJHarris.com. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? I would just like to do one more plug, and that's mm -hmm. by a Ben Trick book. So you can buy lots of the history of the future, but you won't be you won't be disappointed if you buy a book by Ben Masry. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Blake. Hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you, Steve. Have a great one. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it, and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.